0: The message, very simply, be obedient and be holy. Uh, It's a very straightforward title, but the Apostle Peter himself was quite straightforward when he wrote the the epistle. So um, he wrote it to believers scattered in various territories throughout the Roman Empire. Um, And it was not just a direction, but an encouragement to those Christians. To set the scene for you, in that time, it's about AD 64, and Nero is emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, you've probably heard of Emperor Nero and the many things that he did. Um, he had already, by this time, been declining in his mental health. Uh, he had, among others, his own mother, Agrippina, killed after she had objected to an affair he was having with a married woman. Nero's reign itself had begun to suffer, and it is widely known and believed that his mother essentially reigned through him for the first part of his reign. Uh, after her death, Nero suffered with a lack of guidance and care from his mother. He spiraled out of control. Uh, and one night in July of AD 64, it is believed, it is believed by most historians, that he started a fire that swept through the entire city. Three of the 14 districts of Rome were completely destroyed, and the seven Heavily damaged. The fire was said to have burned for over a week. And while it is believed that Nero set the fire, and he did so um, essentially as a plan to clear an area to build himself a golden palace, um, he did that and then realized later on, when the Romans became very angry, that he needed a scapegoat for his actions and what he had done. So he began to blame the Christians on what had happened. It is believed that the the fire that he set was accidental to a point, not in its intent, but that in its widespread damage and destruction in Rome. But nevertheless, mansions, temples, houses, and more were burned to the ground, and many were died. So Nero turned the hostility of the Roman people towards Christians and chose them as his targets. Consequently, the persecution of Christians under Nero began, And he had been thrown to the beasts in the Colosseum, crucified, and burned alive. And in fact, Roman historians say, like Tacitus, that uh, we get much of our information from Tacitus. They say that Nero was quite adept at torturing and killing Christians. Those that he burned, he actually covered in pitch and tar, which itself is a very painful and uh, gruesome process. But then he would hang them up at his dinner parties and burn them as torches, alive. Um, so as the great persecution of Nero is happening, this is the setting that the Apostle Peter is writing to believers around the Roman Empire at this time. So with that small snippet of background, let me read for you this passage today that I want to keep our attention on. It's 1 Peter 1, 13-16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What is holiness? That's the subject of our topic today, one part of it at least, but the overall theme is holiness. The word holy in this passage comes from the Greek term hagios, and I hope I'm saying that right for you Greek scholars. Hagios, which means to revere or to venerate. It has the idea of holding something in awe or something in reverence. It has that quality of being sacred. It's the same Greek term used throughout the New Testament described the holy in God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. To understand holiness, though, you first need to understand that holiness is one of the attributes of God himself. God epitomizes true holiness. He is perfect nothing, and no one else are perfect, only God, and to that end he is holy. This is why God hates sin. Sin is an offense to him and to his holiness. You will often hear people describe God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, etc., which are all part of God's character, but you don't often hear preaching or talk of the holiness of God. It's a critical aspect of God's character, and it puts into perspective why the penalty for sin is so so dire. <clears throat> you will hear many people tell of how they share the gospel by telling others how God loves them. The only part That's the only part of the message, though, and it's the shameful truth that God and His holiness are not often included in the gospel message when it's presented. Truthfully, and please understand what I'm saying here, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and you only mention God's love, you are not sharing the whole gospel. It is a fundamental truth that people must recognize that they are sinners who have a nature, a sin nature, and who live in direct conflict with a holy God. They must repent of their sins and turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. If you truly love people, the greatest gift that you can give them is a complete and wholly presented gospel presentation that includes the fact that they are sinners and that they are offending a holy God with their sin nature. God's holiness is paramount to understanding and presenting the gospel message. Now, the overall point that I'm presenting to you today is that Christians are commanded to live a life of holiness, looking forward to Christ's return by being obedient to God and his commands in Scripture. So if we look again real quick at verses 13 and 14, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The first thing that's mentioned here is preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. In other translations, like the New King James, it says, Gird up the loins of your mind. The same language is used in Ephesians 6.14, referring to the belt of truth, if you're familiar with the armor of God passage. The picture here is of the ancient practice of, of gathering up one's robes or tunic, securing it when you need to move in a hurry or running. Soldiers who used to do battle who wore tunics, they used to wear a sash and before battle they would gather up their robes and they would tuck it in so it wouldn't be encumbering them to uh, when they started running or when they moved quickly in battle. The last thing you want to do is trip over your tunic in a fight. So. It has with it that picture of gathering up your robes, securing them for action. Now, Peter is telling his readers that they need to focus on their thinking, getting rid of all frivolous hindrances of the world with their minds and within their minds and focusing on their future hope. Uh, that future hope is the culmination of Christ's work and salvation when he returns, when he glorifies Christians, as in the eternal state of believers, after we are with him in heaven, and gives us an eternal life in his presence. This is our future hope, and and what most theologians call our great hope in Christ. If you'll notice here, Peter tells his readers to be sober-minded. Spiritual sober-mindedness has to do with self-control and clarity of mind. He's telling Christians that we are to be unhindered or unattached by the allurements of the world, and instead focused on Christ and his work. He then says be hopeful and look ahead doing so as obedient children in that first part of verse 14. Be obedient. What is obedience? Essentially obedience carries with it the idea of doing what is required of you or or, or the act of doing what's required or directed. Um, It has that idea of submitting to somebody in authority. So who are you obeying? What are you being obedient to? Obedience, it starts with a directive or an order or a law, and it demands compliance. There's no negotiation there. Uh, You see that in Scripture too, for instance, when you read Ephesians 6.1, in respect to children obeying their parents, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. There's no room for negotiation there. It's very straightforward. It's a command. There's no room for misinterpretation, if you will, uh, if you go further down to verse five in Ephesians six, slaves obey your earthly masters, bondservants obey your earthly masters, for fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So God commands us in scriptures that we are in the scriptures that we are to obey those who are in authority over us. Same with Romans thirteen one to two, Paul tells his readers that they are to obey those who are in authority over them, as those that God has placed in authority over them. So as Christians, we are to live a life of obedience to God and to the commands that he has given us in Scripture. If you've been watching the news at all, you no doubt have heard about the U.S. election and the ongoing fight President Trump and his legal team are involved in as they are trying to have the election results uh, overturned and uncertified or or looking for a recertification. There's a lot of steps in that process and a very, very big process that they're undergoing. Um, They believe and they say they have evidence of widespread voter fraud and corruption. And so what they're attempting to do is to take the election results, go back up to the Supreme Court at some point and get them overturned for either a new election or to keep President Trump in office. There's a lot of legislation behind that. Um, They have presented evidence to the individual state courts and they're working their way up to the Supreme Court. But I think what I want to focus on here is whether you agree or disagree with what's happening there, if you read a lot of the news sources, there are people who are calling for um, armed resistance. They're calling for American citizens to stand up and fight. And it's not just on one side of the fence, it's both sides of the fence. Um, if Joe Biden ends up winning and the the election is certified, then conservatives have talked about rising up. Um, If President Trump ends up winning his legal battle and overturning those elections, they're talking about the left side rising up. And it's one of those things where both sides believe they have the right, they believe that justice is on their side, that the Constitution is on their side. Um, But at the end of the day, who's right? You're talking about something, uh, the last article that I read, they are talking about something called the Insurrection Act. And what that essentially does is it allows the president or whoever's in office to put American military on the streets of the the country to um, quell riots and things like that or or quell any insurrections. Uh, The last time it was used was in the 90s when the Rodney King situation was happening in LA.
1: So it is a legal
0: law. but, if you're a Christian, what is your responsibility here? And that's part of what living a holy life is. Do you watch from the sidelines? Do you pray, or do you get involved? If there is an armed resistance? what do we do? what's our our role as Christians here? What if your side doesn't win? You know I mean, depending on how you lean, um, there are lots and lots of different arguments to be made that people do make. At the end of the day, what is our duty before the Lord? That is what matters. Obedience is a mark of true Christian faith and it is an evidence of Christian character. Our allegiance is to God himself, and ultimately he is our authority that we submit to. So whether, even though it says in the New Testament that we are to submit to those in authority over us, that only goes so far. That only goes so far in the... If somebody is asking you to deny the scriptures or to go against God's law, what's your what's your next step there? Do you go with it? Or do you take a stand? But whether we like them or not, or agree with them or not, God has placed officials in governing positions over us, and we must, with a healthy dose of prayer and respect, um, Love them, I guess, in a sense, the Christian way, and respect that authority that he has placed them in. It's a very unpopular notion, really, especially in the racially charged environment that we live in today. That the inspired writers of the New Testament never called slaves, for instance, to rise up and rebel against their early earthly masters. Those who were called to believe, oh, sorry, those. There are those who believe that racism is the ultimate injustice, and there are those who call themselves Christians that believe and, and preach that from their pulpits. But what do you do with verses like Ephesians 6.5, which we just read, that says, slaves obey your earthly masters? True holiness seeks to live the Christian life as Christ calls us to. The slavery metaphor is one employed by New Testament writers again and again, writing on a divine inspiration, that we are willing slaves to Christ, who is our master. Your life is not your own, my life is not my own. Our lives belong to Christ, who purchased them with his blood. He saved us. The Greek word for slave is Julos, and is used in the original text, in the original text of the New Testament, a hundred and thirty times. There is no ambiguity here. It is a literal translation of the word, of the English word slave. When you Read introductions to various New Testament books, for example, like Romans, Philippians, James, etc. You see writers introduce themselves as doulos, as slaves, even though most English translations use the word like bondservant. And that was, there's lots and lots of of work and books done on that. I would highly encourage you to look that up. But um, the correct rendering of that word is slave, not bondservant. It's a very unpopular opinion today, especially when you consider what's happening across the country, across the Uh, the pond in America and all the riots and things that were happening over there all in the name of social justice and and standing up against racism. Not that racism isn't a problem. Racism is a problem. But is it the only problem? And when you look at uh, issues of the day through the lens of your pet issue, you end up clouding um, any view that you have. You don't look at it through the lens of what's my personal issue? What thing am I most affected by? You look at it through lens of Scripture because that's what God commands us to do. The very obvious notion here, whether it's directly or indirectly stated through the Bible, is that we are called to be obedient to God and to His Word in whatever way we can regardless of what popular opinion says. It only takes one person to make a stand for truth. You don't need others in your life to assist you in doing the right thing. You don't need to check and see what others are doing To help you make the right decision. In fact, very often, the right decision is the least popular decision of all. This doesn't change the fact, though, that right is right. God calls us to be obedient in every context, in every situation, no matter the cost. So living a life of holiness starts with being obedient to God and to his word. But we can't leave out the second part of verse 14 and go through the end of 16. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, not acting as you did when you were an unbeliever or not saved. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be holy. We already took the time to establish what holiness is, but I want to look at quickly what, what it looks like in life. Verse 16 there Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy, is a direct quote from the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44. And if you're not familiar with the book of Leviticus, it's the one book in the Old Testament many are afraid to read through during their yearly Bible readings, because it is so filled with um, law and commands and step-by-step outlaying of ceremonials and ritual rites and things that God had given the nation of Israel. Moses wrote that book, um, and it is essentially, I guess if you could break it down, it's essentially God's giving the nation of Israel his law and instruction regarding the aspects of uh, Jewish life, Jewish culture, and what worship of God truly looks like. Uh, and I would highly encourage you to study that book as a side note. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult study, but once you get your mind uh, and sort of your head around what he's saying and do a little bit of digging there, you get a great insight into the mind of God. And and what he was doing when he was giving those laws to Israel, he was setting them apart from their neighbors and those around them, just like Christians are called to be set apart. And when you do that and you do that kind of study, uh, when you go back and you read stuff in the New Testament, comments that are made by people like Paul, uh, they start to make sense because he refers back with imagery from... Jewish law, Jewish custom, Jewish rituals, and they're all found in the book of Leviticus. So it's it's quite a fascinating study. But it also is a great example of how Scripture interprets itself. So I'd highly recommend that. Um, living a life of holiness does not mean that we are perfect and that we never sin. It's far from it. This side of heaven, even as Christians, we still sin. We struggle with that every day. Um, what we're talking about here is living a life that's set apart from the world and the sinful nature we possessed before we were Christians. The reason we are to practice this holy manner of living is because we are Christians who bear the name of Christ and who are associated with the holy God, and we must treat him and his word with the reverence and respect that it is due. Therefore, we most glorify him when we be like him. So if you even look ahead to verse 17 of First Peter 1, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, if you call yourselves Christians who know God and know that He judges all people righteously according to His character and His will, you will respect and revere Him as God and seek to honor and glorify Him. Ephesians 5 1 says, Be imitators of God. Live for Him by living according to the example that He set. There are many different ideas of what holiness is today that do not fit with the biblical definition. Regarding living a holy life, let me give you a few quotes from some very famous people that reflect some ideas that are prevalent in the world today. I'd like to note, too, that sadly these ideas are even inside the church and modern Christianity and do not adhere to what the Bible teaches about holiness and holy living. These particular quotes, though, come from men and women who are considered Christian leaders. Um, I won't tell you who they are, but I just want to give you the quotes and I just want you to hear what they're saying because these are very, very popular ideas. So in the context of living well and the context of living a holy life, the first one is, Your dream may look impossible, but God said blessings will chase you down. Ask big. Take the limits off of God. God wants to bless you in such a way that people notice. He wants to show out in your life. I gotta tell you now, friends, that we do not limit God. Okay? God is all all powerful. God is holy. He is just, he is omnipotent, and he does not wait for you and me to give him permission to do things in life. I just wanted to say that. The second one, the new creation is created after God in righteousness. This is an idea that is actually being floated created after God in righteousness and true holiness. The new man is after God, like God, God-like, complete in Jesus Christ. A new creation is just like God. May I say it like this? You are a little God on earth running around. That's blasphemy. We are not divine. We are not God. Uh, the next one, last one that I have for that. I have every right and authority to declare the White House, as holy ground because I was standing there and where I stand is holy ground. It's not true. Only God is holy. Only God is holy. If you remember God in, in the Old Testament where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, that's holy ground. Not where we stand. Beloved, these ideas are prevalent in society today. Live the Christian life so that you can get that health, wealth, and prosperity because that's what God wants for you. Don't be so humble and modest. You're a Christian, and as a Christian, you're a little God. You're so powerful. You're not. It is true that we have the power of Christ in us. It is true that Christ saved us and redeemed us from a life of sin, but that is not because of us. That is because of him. It is all him. So you can see the utter blasphemy that these ideas purport. And you can see how all the glory is taken away from God and how a man-centered these ideas really are. While I would never put the knowledge of men over the Bible and what it has to say, I have two quotes from two godly men that I think will help us to understand a little better what Scripture says. The first is by a man named Jerry Bridges, and if you've never read Jerry's books, I would highly recommend them. Jerry was a highly regarded author and speaker. Listen to what he says from his excellent book, The Pursuit of Holiness. Many Christians have what we might call a cultural holiness. They adapt to the character and behavior of Christians around them. But God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. This last part is the one that I really wanted to get to. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character of God himself. And the second quote that I have is from our beloved 19th century preacher, English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who I love. A faith which works for pure, sorry, let me try again. A faith which works not for purification will work for putrefaction. Unless our faith makes us pine after holiness, it is no better than the faith of devils, and perhaps it is not even so good as that. A holy man is the workmanship of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference? Man-centered theology versus God-centered theology. Man-centered says, I live a holy life so I can get all the glory because I deserve it. God-centered says, I live a holy life because Christ paid the penalty for my sins. How can I do anything else?
1: Beloved, living
0: a holy life means living life as God prescribed in the pages of Scripture for his glory. It means Matthew 16, 24-27 from the mouth of our Savior Himself, Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So we have an obligation as Christians to live for Christ, who is our master. He bought us, he paid for us with his own blood. He paid the penalty of sin because we could not. And then that great truth in Galatians 4-7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God saved us through the finished work of Christ on the cross. He adopted us into his family and as Christians representing the one true God in Jesus Christ. It is our duty to represent Christ to the world proclaiming an unadulterated, full gospel message to the world and living a life that is holy and pleasing to God. Living a holy life means living your life by the standards God set forth in his word that Christ exemplified during his life through the help and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Christ has provided us all we need to be able to do that. We have but to lean on the one who saved us. And to be able to do that, we need to turn to him. We have but to look to him in his example, knowing that he knows our suffering, Hebrews 14, 15, and 16, and that we can draw near to the throne of grace in prayer, and that he will receive us in mercy and in grace and help us in our time of need, because that's the kind of Savior that we have. Living a holy life means living a life according to the Scriptures. It means living a life that is dedicated first and foremost to the pursuit of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. It does not mean putting your job above everything else. It does not mean going to church because, you know, that's the thing. Although that is important, don't get me wrong. Church is critical, and that's another sermon for another time. But what it means is doing things because Christ commanded, because we want to serve the master, because we want to advance his kingdom. It does not mean doing a job. It does not mean doing a task because it's there. It means fully investing ourselves in the work of Christ. Let me leave you with a final quote again from Charles Spurgeon. If Christ had died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in sin, but must arouse myself to love and serve him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my greatest friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is our desire to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. Thank you for your word and for being our God, who we can turn to in in any time of happiness and trouble, and who will hear us his people. Thank you for redeeming us and for rescuing us from the eternal punishment of sin. May our lives reflect Christ truly, may our lips proclaim the gospel fully, and may we never lose sight of our great hope when Christ returns and takes us to himself forever. May we take this message with us today and reflect on your word as we go forward this week. For your honor and your glory, in whose name we pray. Amen.